Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everybody back into the Garden Shows. Uh, to be honest, at this moment, I'm not sure if I'm going to be using this for Garden of Doom or Garden of Views because this show can probably fit on either. It'll just depend on how long we go. Uh, if it's shorter, it'll probably be on Garden of Views. If it goes longer, it'll be on Garden of Doom. Either way, it works. And our guest it has been on both shows, and that's Matt Williams. But for those of you who haven't heard the show on Battlestar Galactica, which is a mistake, you should. Or if you haven't heard in situ resource utilization, you should on Garden Views, because that's a mistake. You should listen to that as well. But for those of you who haven't, uh, Matt, please introduce yourself and let them know just a few essential facts about yourself. Uh, well, my name is Matt Williams, and I'm a science uh, communicator slash writer, and I dabble in science fiction writing, but uh, yeah, my, uh, my day job consists of me writing about space, astronomy, and related topics uh, for Universe Today, Interesting Engineering, and uh, yeah, through a new podcast series I, I just launched with uh, ITSP Magazine, which is called Stories from Space. And uh, yeah, that's still uh, we we just published the second episode this past this past weekend, and well, a lot more to follow because I've already recorded them. So excellent. Uh, yeah. And what's uh, as we said earlier, produ producers move at their own speed, whereas you know the, uh, people like us tend to record uh, far more than we need to and <laughs> introduce it slowly. You know, yeah. That's how I feel until I take a few weeks off and, and use the backup show, and then I start to get frenetic again. But, you know, you, as you said, that's, yeah. a, that's a cycle that uh, some of us just can't break ourselves out of. And 
But more to the point, you are about to, well, not more to the point, but equally to the point and particularly germane to this episode, which is going to be on Mars. And we're going to stick to the facts, but we're going to explore some of the myths. Uh, but we're going to look at it from a, well, not we. Matt's going to look at it from a science standpoint because I don't know the science. Um, but you are teaching a course or you're going to be teaching a course on all things Mars uh, or a lot of things Mars for the Kepler Institute. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Um, the Kepler Space Institute is, um, it is essentially uh, one of the few uh, certified and uh, space universities in the world, one of the few places that actually one can get uh, certification in, in a number of things having to do with uh, space exploration. And what they're currently working on is actually establishing the first ever certification process for space medicine. Wow. Because, you know, for reasons no one could couldn't rationalize properly, it, it's, uh, it, there is no such thing right now. <laughs> and it's hard to believe. So somewhere between Bones McCoy and Doc Cottle, uh, we have to have uh, we have to have some rules. Exactly. Yeah, there has to be a legal framework for uh, dealing with uh, injuries, medical practices, insurance, all that stuff. There beyond low Earth orbit because that's that's where all all of the most ambitious planning right now is is looking to that and. Yeah, so there's an awful lot that needs to be worked out legally, and it is amazing. Yeah, there, that that's happening. So much activity on that front. It's really quite neat. I've got to find someone from that group to come on the show and talk about the legal medical aspects of space. That's 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 one I I haven't notched on my belt yet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, well, but, you know, I could I could recommend some people. I could hook you up with them, and and yeah, they uh, there there's in fact uh, an entire. Uh, the Space Generation Advisory Council and the Spaceport Foundation, they're, they're, they're also the ones who want to do all this, uh, work out all the legal, um, well, to establish legal frameworks for living, working uh, on the moon, on Mars, in space, uh, low Earth orbit, uh, and near-Earth asteroids, asteroid mining, all that stuff. It's like there has to be a law, uh, laws regarding what people can do and how to address complaints. Otherwise, yeah, it is going to be a Wild West situation out there. and Nobody really wants that. No, they shouldn't. And that's what we've been exploring on the show. And I, I definitely want to talk to all those folks. And that, that's going to be a lot of fun. But I will certainly hit you up for that. But for now, we're going to stick to Mars. Uh, and I guess we should probably start with the basics. I mean, I think most people know Mars from the vantage point of the sun out is the fourth rock from the sun. If I'm not mistaken, it is, uh, well, actually, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna leave the, the particulars of Mars to, you can give Mars's resume. Okay, yeah, well, Mars is uh, a rocky planet like Earth. It's, uh, yes, it, it is the fourth from the sun and it is the outermost rocky planet. And, um, the current theories suggest that it was actually, it should have been uh, comparable in size to Earth, but material was just sort of siphoned off during the whole uh, planet's early early solar system uh, there. And uh, yeah, and because it is uh, it is smaller and less dense than Earth, it, it uh, yes, its its makeup, its composition is different, its geological history was different. 
And it was once, it, it once had a, a magnetic field like Earth does, and that's very important for keeping the sun and solar radiation sort of at bay and protecting uh, an atmosphere. Um, and so at one time it did have an atmosphere, uh, much, it still does, it's just it's very thin and, and uh, wispy compared to what it once had. And uh, it had uh, flowing water on its surface. And this was billions of years ago, but uh, scientists today really do wonder, um, was that, that window there where Mars was warmer and wetter, was it wide enough that life could have taken, taken root on, on Mars because it was doing that on Earth at that exact same time? Um, so we have so many missions there today trying to uncover and, and really piece together Mars's past and figure out exactly um, when and, uh, and how it, it transitioned to what it is today because it's incredibly dry, it's freezing cold, it's heavily irradiated, and what little air there is would be completely and utterly toxic to us. Okay, and, let's try and unpack some of these things. Uh, firstly, how far is it from Earth and how far would that make it from the Sun? Uh, gee, there are astro, astrological, or not astrological, astronomical charts, um, but I have an article actually on that there with the universe today, yeah. and, um, well, basically Mars, uh, yeah, every 26 months, Mars will be at its closest point to Earth in its uh, orbit and its, uh, uh, relative to Earth there, so yeah, every every 26 months it's uh, close enough that using conventional propulsion there, you could get there with, from 6 to 9 months. And here we are. Um, let's see, distance between Earth and Mars. This varies from when they are closest uh, ballpark about 100 million kilometers or just over 62 million miles. Uh, when they are farthest apart, it is, uh, yeah, about uh, four times that much. So 400 million or 250 million miles. As for uh, the sun, the sun, it is an average distance of 228 million kilometers. Uh, hmm. Nope, I can't, hang on, I think I got these backwards here. Uh, distance, no, hang on. Can we hold for one second here? Sure. Because this this can't possibly be right here. I've got um, okay. Uh, the distance between oh, actually, yes, it can. What am I thinking? Duh. Okay. Um, so clip out the part where I sound uncertain there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. In, in other words, um, when Earth and Mars are at their closest, there, yeah, they're just about 100 million kilometers from each other. Um, and uh, when Mars is on the other side of the Sun, or opposition, yeah, it is uh, really quite far, 400 million kilometers. Um, and uh, yeah, basically that's, uh, that's part of why it, it uh, has been such a real headache for astronomers. For the longest time they didn't realize that the Sun was at the center of the universe, so they couldn't explain why Mars appeared so rather large in the night sky at one time and rather small at the other. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the point is, for from an astronomical point of view, 
it is a very, very, very far bridge. You know, the moon is uh, relatively easy to get to by comparison. And, you know, you look at the effort that that, that, that takes us, right? It's been over 50 years since we sent astronauts back to the moon, and it took a titanic effort back in the 60s and early 70s. True that. Um, and you said that Mars is it's denser and has left less gravity and it does not have much in the way of um, magnetic, uh, magnetic magnetic field um, yeah and, less dense technically it's yeah it's uh, it has less mass and less density so yeah the material is made of uh, it uh, it's got less in the way of heavy metals than, than earth does um, but uh, yeah by and large the structure is the same it's just smaller and yeah it's magnetic field basically died out a long time ago but it's still got these small localized uh, magnetic traces in, in its rock formations and so forth so yeah one thing you could never do on mars is navigate with a compass <laughs> produce absolutely completely uh unreliable readings there's no true north you'd have to do star charts or something um, yeah. So, okay, so the, the gravity is much less than? It's about 40% of what we have on Earth, uh, 38% in change. So, yeah, and that is, uh, that is probably the only thing that, well, uh, when it comes to people going there, it's like, can you live on Mars? It's like, absolutely, it just, you know, how much are you willing to spend? The technology is there. The one thing we don't really have an answer for is, well, can you live there indefinitely given that the gravity is lower? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And the atmosphere, uh, it's, it's, there's less of an atmosphere. Uh, is, uh, do mm -hmm. we know what is the gaseous makeup? I mean, obviously there's not air as we can breathe it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's about um, half of a percent on average of air pressure at sea level here on earth so very very thin and it's uh, that's mostly carbon dioxide a few other a few other trace gases uh, teensy bit of water vapor but largely uh, yeah the the very gas that is toxic to the mammalian life there including us humans that's that's what mars's atmosphere is mostly made up of okay um how does this compare to the moon as far as gravity? The, and the moon, I don't think, has any atmosphere. I could be wrong about that. Uh, and temperature, uh, like what, what is the temperature on, on Mars, I guess in Fahrenheit, if you could? Well, I, I certainly can try. Um, have to do conversion here, but, you know, that shouldn't be a problem. Um, so basically, the moon is an airless body. Right? It has no atmosphere to speak of. Um, and, yeah, that's, that is true of most bodies in our solar system. Um, and uh, in, in Mars's case, the, yeah, the fact that it's got a, a wispy atmosphere changes things uh, considerably, so it makes it actually a more desirable destination to stay. It's just it's a lot further to get to. Um, in terms of temperature, yeah, uh, both the Moon and Mars have pretty pretty significant variations there. Uh, but on Mars, the, yeah, here we have Fahrenheit. 
Uh, it will range from uh, 160, minus 166 degrees Fahrenheit to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. And it all depends on where you're taking the temperature from and what time of day and what time of year. But it's like around the, around the poles, around the more northern uh, or deep southern reaches, that's where it gets down to minus 166 at night. But in the daytime, around the equator, especially in summer, yeah, you, you can get temperatures that are well, on the surface, if you're measuring just right on the surface there, they're warmer than some places on Earth, even. Oh, wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, as, uh, as uh, it was explained to me there, uh, a NASA scientist uh, named uh, Kobe Boykins, who worked on uh, several of the rovers, uh, he explained that because the atmosphere is so thin, that, that temperature drops really fast the further you get away from the ground. And we're talking just mere inches. He said, yes, your, your feet, if you could stand uh, on Mars barefoot, your, your toes would be touching the ground there. Uh, it could be as hot as 30 or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. It'd be nice and warm. By the time you got to your ankles, it would be close to freezing. And by the time you got to your knees, be really freezing so okay so yes so, so yeah. this is yeah. not a high desert situation that this is this is a high few this is the high desert exists only up to uh, a couple of inches depending on how tall you are and and it yeah. drops considerably so there there is there is no outdoor living unless you're some sort of like super mouse um yeah even temperature wise uh is mm-hmm. there weather is there is there is there rain are there sandstorms is there wind uh oh yeah mars gets uh, dust storms uh, all the time um and we're still trying to figure that one out because conventional wisdom says oh the air's too thin for, for these dust storms but they no they happen all the time and uh, a lot of them are localized but sometimes they get so big they they cover the entire planet and it's they are seasonal one hemisphere is getting warm during summer that causes wind to circulate and it starts kicking up all kinds of dust, and that can last for months. Um, but, and Mars does have seasons, and that's one of uh, something that it shares with Earth. It does, definitely has four discernible seasons because it's it's tilted at a um, very similarly to Earth. In fact, it's like uh, twenty four versus twenty five uh, degrees. So, yeah, its southern hemisphere will experience summer while the north experiences winter, and as it's going about in, uh, in its orbit, that will switch. Um, a, single, a single year on Mars is about uh, two years on Earth, so the seasons are longer, um, but they work much the same way, and um, yeah, they do cause weather and, and changes, and, and uh, it's, uh, oh yeah, it's glaciers. Right? Mars has uh, polar polar ice caps, and they they shrink and grow in from summer to winter, and um, and a lot of that is water ice, but some of it is um, especially around the south is carbon dioxide ice. So it's, that's part of the atmosphere freezing. So that's that's identical to what happens on Earth, except on Earth our, our ice caps are are you know atmospheric vapor that then gets frozen and then melts and uh you know goes back and forth throughout the seasons and uh as for rain there mars sometimes gets clouds and on occasion it gets carbon dioxide rain but 
Yeah, the funny thing is those clouds form up in the sky um, where it's cold enough for carbon dioxide to condense. It then starts dropping uh, carbon dioxide uh, snow towards the ground. Um, but as it gets closer to the surface, it gets warmer. It just kind of vaporizes. So, yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't get precipitation entirely, right? Uh, anything, any uh, any snow that that starts uh, up in the atmosphere during the winter never quite reaches the ground. So, so what, what does carbon dioxide rain look like? I'm sort of picturing in my mind when Thanos did the snap and some of the people disintegrated. <laughs> yeah. Before our eyes, is it, yeah. is it sort of like a, almost like a black, you know, sooty rain, like from, you see with a fire, except it disintegrates? Well, actually, actually no. Uh, yeah, I, I should correct any, any mentions of rain should be amended to snow, carbon dioxide snow, because, uh, yeah, but um, it actually looks, dry ice, it looks like, uh, a lot like regular ice, except it's, uh, I think the one difference, I've never seen it up close, is that it's always very cloudy looking. And when it starts to, to melt, it just it just starts turning into a cloudy, gassy vapor. It doesn't go, uh, it's not like uh, water that would, uh, uh, water ice that would, you know, turn into a liquid and slowly, slowly evaporate. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very... Uh, uh, very volatile, so it will become it will become a gas the pretty much the second it hits air. Gotcha. All right. Now you had said earlier that there are scientists wondering if Mars was ever tempered enough to support life. Uh, and I know this is a bigger question probably than 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 the show allows or even science say knows. But if you if if that was the case, would that have been like a billion years ago, two billion years ago, half a billion years ago. I mean, what, what kind of time frame are we looking at? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not entirely sure the exact parameters, but we're talking about four billion years ago. So, oh wow, when the earliest life forms were on Earth, the simple single-cell bacteria. Um, that's when Mars was starting to experience its uh, its transition. Now, it lasted well into the um, you know, thir- three billion um, cycle, I guess. I'm not sure what sure. you call that. I mean, um, yeah. BCE. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so, so um, between 4.2 and 3.7 billion years ago, as I recall, that's, that's when Mars was losing its atmosphere. So any life forms that would have been on the surface and probably in, you know, in, in, in waters and lake beds and in, rivers and such, um, and in the clay minerals that, that we're able to find there today. Um, yeah, it's, uh, they, they would have had that window there. So, uh, a few hundred million years. And then after that, it would have been impossible for them to survive on the surface. And so that's why one of the big theories is, is that, um, well, if there's anything left there, life-wise, it's going to be underground, sure. probably deep underground, but they, uh, yeah, they figured that, well, that's where most of the water may have gone to, so well, they could be happy down there. Um, then, yeah, not, not now. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, not now, no, no. The, the, yeah, it's like the best we could do now is find fossilized evidence of bacteria on the surface, and, and that would do it for us. It's like, we don't need to find the living cultures here. We know life once existed. That's awesome. Oh. No, that's, no, yeah. No, the, no underground cities. No. 
No, it's the uh, the idea that Mars ever had a civilization on it, or, or would have given rise to really complex life that could that could do something like that. Um, yeah, that that pretty much died out a long time ago. Um, but um, you know, it, it is uh, the idea or the or the civilized life died out a, a long time ago. Both, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's got to be one or the other because. <laughs> Yeah, did it ever really exist? Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, it, 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 that idea of Mars uh, having a civilization on it—it it, uh, yeah. By the 1970s, it, that got a with the, the Viking missions. But even before that, though, but by the 1970s, yeah, that uh, the, that mission, those missions uh, were like a bucket of ice water on the whole Martian concept. Gotcha. And yeah. But there is water there. You said that there's fr- there's glaciers, so there's so there's water, uh, and there's yes. a. It's all ice, I guess, or is there any liquid water that we know of? Uh, underground, yeah. Um, there, there's uh, a lot of evidence for underground water, or the, at least the possibility of it, right? Okay. And because uh, well, there's tons of uh, solid ice in the ice caps, there's lots of permafrost in the soil around the ice caps there's uh all kinds of readings that say yeah there's there's got to be these big reservoirs down beneath the ice caps again but not just there even in the mid latitude so if you if you drill deep enough where you know the sensors are saying we're getting uh readings there of some kind of subsurface uh thing and it looks like it's uh full of hydrogen then yeah it's like well, you just hit an aquifer, and so yeah, a lot of a lot of mission planning there, a lot of ideas about you know, establishing bases on Mars. They involve this idea that there there's uh, there's water enough for you know, a lot of people. You you just have to make sure you build your base uh, somewhere where you know it's accessible and it's not going to be a long drive to the pumping station. That makes even it better. Attach attach the pumping station to the the habitat. Water for everybody. What what's the coldest temperature you know on Earth? Like I assume it's Antarctica, or the Arctic Circle. Like what 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 is what's the average temperature there? Is it is it? I mean, I think you said negative one hundred and ninety is Mars. I do. Do we get anything even close to that on Earth? Antarctica, yeah, the uh, the highest readings there um, were about 130 um, Fahrenheit, as I recall, and I and I was at uh, taken in Antarctica at Vostok Station, which is one of the scientific outposts there. Um, it was maintained by the by the Russians, and yeah, the in that area, it's it's uh, it is technically. It is technically on the Antarctic ice shelf, um, where it, it's the driest desert in the world. So that's minus Just, 130 Fahrenheit. Uh, yeah. Minus one, yeah, minus 130. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's very, very cold. And, and this is what uh, uh, Bill Nye said it. And uh, I think it was a really good description. He's like, if you, if you wanted to, if you're wondering what it'd be like to live on Mars, well, think of uh, Antarctica. Only uh, a lot colder and way drier, and you can't walk around outside without bottled oxygen. And you know, in Antarctica, you have to bundle up, but on Mars, you're going to need a pressure suit. Right. 
a, a, a well-insulated pressure suit and a steady supply of oxygen because, yeah, Mars basically makes Antarctica look balmy and very livable. Hmm. What about what about food? Is there is there any vegetation, algae, moss? Uh, are are is there any evidence? Uh, I was reading, I think two days ago, that there's there's actually an, an indigenous insect in Antarctica, which apparently is going extinct. It, it, I mean, I know that we haven't found insects in Mar uh, on Mars or fossilized, but is there anything to indicate there was that there's anything to eat or that can be converted to food there? Uh no, no, uh, no lichens or moss or anything, but there is a, a rather interesting uh, chemical process that, that some people have been working on where you can convert carbon dioxide, so from the air, uh, and uh, you mix it with something, and the end result is you've got proteins, uh, protein molecules, so kind of be like a... Um, it's kind of like in the Matrix there when they, they eat this bowl of sludge. And they're like, it's a, yeah, it's a single cell protein with a whole bunch of synthetic vitamins added. It's basically everything your body needs that you would get from food. But, it yeah, it looks like, a, well, bad oatmeal or something worse. Right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that is about the only food you could get from Mars. Um, so... Yeah, it's like if you're if you're hoping on uh, eating, especially food that is tasty, you're gonna have to bring it with you, and you're gonna have to grow it there, and and you really gotta stay on that because it's like if the food, if the the uh, the, the food supply collapses, if you can't uh, if you can't regularly grow a harvest to supplement whatever packaged food you brought along, then you're gonna die. Well, I'm pretty sure that uh, Wolfgang Puck, Emeril, Bobby Flay, and Gordon Ramsay are already competing for space there to, uh, oh, yeah. to, to, to make <laughs> everything delicious uh, in the in, in the spaceport that'll be there. Um, yeah. Okay. So on the there, how do how would we live there? I mean, I guess there. I mean, do you do you have 3D printers? Are you ferrying like modules? Is it a combination of both? How does a 3D printer make? I mean, doesn't a 3D printer need something to convert some something into something that's 3D? I keep saying something. I just don't know what material goes into the 3D printer to come out with with uh, something that's corporeal that that that's solid. Um, so, what's the plan? <laughs> That's a, oh yeah, that's a big one there. So uh, there, there's been a lot of really, really, really interesting uh, stuff on this. And uh, NASA has done a lot of work with uh, 3D printing uh, to address uh, how, how we're going to use that on the moon and Mars. And it's, uh, it's actually really well suited for the moon and Mars. Because if there's one thing both bodies have just boatloads of, it's, uh, it's sand. It's uh, we call it regolith, but on Earth it's just sand. And it's like on the Moon, it's uh, you know it's pretty sharp and electrostatically charged, but it's all this fine crystallized dust. And you pour that into a 3D printer, and one of two things: you can either mix it with a bonding agent and create uh, like lunar concrete, and then just print that out to make your your habitats and your structures. 
Um, or, and this, this is the one I like the best, um, you can bombard it with microwaves, which turns it into a molten ceramic, and then you just print it out on the surface and it hardens on contact with the air. And it's like, yeah, it, it's almost as if uh, these places were, were built for, with 3D printing in mind. And you can you can do the same with any ore you mine. You can you know put that into a three D printer as uh, as dust, and then um, yeah, print it out and again bombard it with X rays so it solidifies. Um, and this this is exactly what a lot of space agencies have been looking at. So NASA has, the European Space Agency has, almost positive uh, Russia and China are doing the same because it, it just makes perfect sense, right? Um, and it's like that way you don't have to bring your habitats with you. You can bring like uh, inflatable modules and land those and then sort of just pressurize them and then build a big shell using uh, the, the sand and the metals there over top of it. And now you've got something that's, uh, you know, radiation and, and uh, uh, weather resistant. And, and so that would be just fine for early uh early inhabitants and you equip them with 3d printers right you you just leave the ones there and they're able to build more structures that way and they can sort of migrate them underground because um it that too makes sense on on the moon and mars any radiation any solar flare events or stuff like that it's like yeah we better get underground and while this is happening just to be safe um and then yeah the uh else have you well you would need excavators yeah you would need excavators and you would need Mm -hmm. something to power microwaves right yeah but yeah so you you do need power systems to you need to bring these with you and you need to then whatever infrastructure you're bringing and and vehicles you then use that to set up your base on site using the local resources and that goes back to the whole in-situ resource utilization thing it's like, well, we have to, we can't just send the crew out there. They 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 need uh, they're going to need the following equipment and to establish a, a base there that's going to you know see to their needs for a while. But uh, the less that the more that you can work with what's already there, the less you need to send. Therefore, the less payload mass, the less uh, fuel you need, costs drop, and. Uh, or, or you could send a, a ship uh, there for the same cost and just, you know, load it up with other things. So is there yeah, a the, is there a John Carter Deer dealership up there where you have all the the excavating equipment and things like that? Uh, no, but see what I did there, John Carter Deer, as opposed yes, to just John yes. Deer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, oh God, that's going to be clever. Somebody, uh, I was going to say. Um, if and when people start going to Mars in, in large numbers, whoever sets up a, a, a hardware outlet there is going to make a lot of money. Um, so, of course, yeah, it's going to be expensive for them to get it there, but they definitely should go. They definitely should use that name. Somebody, you might want to patent that right now. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if my trademark would be uh, enforceable beyond the uh, atmosphere, beyond beyond low Earth orbit. That's a that's a uh, that's another question that uh, I've been wrestling with unsuccessfully because nobody really knows yet. In in any event, oh, yeah. there, there would be that. Well, also, I mean, you know, instead of caterpillar, you could use xeno, you know, xenomorph or you know, or or whatever that insect is in Antarctica that's going extinct. 
uh, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I've got I've got tons of marketing ideas that will never go anywhere. So, but speaking of fuel, is there anything that can be used as fuel on Mars? Is solar an option, or is it too cloudy? I mean, it sounds like it's hot enough at the equator. Uh, you know, if you get them low down enough. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. The, um, yeah. Actually, you, um, water can actually be used to make propellant on Mars. Um, that's one thing. You can. You can also. You can capture CO two from the atmosphere and use that to make uh, fuel. But um, water is probably your best bet because, um, yeah, you can make a. Uh, hydrazine or uh, liquid hydrogen out of out of water easily enough, and you, you separate the oxygen, and then you've got liquid oxygen as your uh, accelerant, and that's that's classic rocket fuel. So um, yeah, there's that. You can do that on on both Mars and the Moon, and that's part of the whole uh, the whole in situ resource utilization mission concept there, right? Uh, you want to definitely be able to produce fuel on site. So that anything you launch there doesn't have to have enough fuel for the return flight. It can just fuel up at the depots there. Um, in terms of solar, yeah, solar is definitely doable on Mars. It's just um, it, it, it's not a standalone thing. So it's like you want wind farms to, to take advantage of uh, you know, the, the uh, changes in weather. You want solar um, and Nuclear is also a very good idea, and again, NASA's working on that too, and uh, so is China, yeah, like a portable nuclear reactor, and the kilo power ideas is what NASA calls theirs, and yeah, you set that up around the base, you have uh, solar and wind there to, to, to have additional power, and the reactor is kind of a... Uh, uh, reliable fallback in case uh, in case you're not generating enough or in case these fail. Um, yeah, there's ideas for like biomass and all, all, all these other things. So it's, yeah, renewable energy makes a lot of sense on Mars. Uh, makes a lot of sense on the moon too. Um, Is there anyone uh, that's yeah. uh, planning to do like a one-way trip with, you know, a nuclear-powered space vessel and it goes, it lands there and they just keep the nuclear reactor going, uh, you know, or they sort of scuttle everything for, and repurpose it, or, or that would be the purpose, one-way trip, but the materials there are to be used. Uh, not yet, um, but it is, it is an idea that that was, uh, yeah, the idea has been proposed a lot, and, and I know that's appeared in fiction, like Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Mars Trilogy, which is like, I think the most influential book on uh, on colonizing Mars, uh, fictional anyway. Um, but yeah, they had that. It's like the initial uh, settlers were all scientists. There was like a hundred of them on board this one ship, and when they got there, they they disassembled their ship and used it to build the habitats. and And I think they they had a reactor on there too. Uh, as far as I know, no one's planning on that. Um, Elon Musk is uh, the only one right now who is saying, I want to bring people to Mars on a one-way trip. Uh, but his rockets, they all come back. They're, they're designed for the return trip, too, right? So, um, yeah. He for now. <laughs> yeah. Has anyone seen him in the last two weeks? Is he still missing? Elon Musk? Yeah, wasn't he missing? Uh, Oh, I, I, I didn't uh, recall hearing that. He, he, made, 
He may not have been seen publicly, but uh, well, according to his Twitter account, he's still pretty active. Okay, I, he's still alive. I, I, I just assumed he was on the way there with a couple of platoon, platoons of space mercenaries. So, yeah, <laughs> um, but as, uh, not just yet. Yeah. Okay, the everyone knows the book The Martian. Great book, great movie. I mean, is is that like anywhere close to the blueprint for for the initial survival on Mars? I mean, not uh, assuming that one guy doesn't get stuck there by himself, that he actually has a, a crew and then doesn't have to uh, science the blank out of it. Since I'm not sure what show it is, I don't want to go explicit. Yeah, yeah. Um, not it, it. It sort of is, but um, back when it was written, I remember hearing about this because. Uh, I'll confess, I haven't read the book yet. I, it's in my pile. I just I, uh, haven't gotten to it. Um, I've seen the movie. My wife has informed me there are some differences. And but as for the science part, uh, I know about. Um, it's close what they enough. Did there. Uh, the movie's close enough to it, the book for, for your purposes. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. And and he was uh, he he definitely did his homework there. Uh, Andy Weir. Yeah, he definitely did his homework there. It's just. What he wrote was current to 2011, and what he um, what he envisioned there was well, they're gonna we're gonna build this really big spacecraft, and it's gonna have like rotating sections, and it's gonna fly to Mars, and it's gonna put a crew down there in a habitat that's gonna last for a while. That was gonna happen in like uh, I think the 2030s uh, was when he predicted this, and. Um, yeah, and then that uh, they are then going to return to Earth after uh, a while, and you know another crew will go out there. Um, and that that uh, too was not that far off, but it's uh, yeah, that's not what NASA is actually planning on doing. Uh, their their plan is a little bit uh, um, a little a little more low tech uh, than you know a big massive ship with rotating sections in it. Um, but that that may be the case someday, and it would it really would be good if it is. And that ship better be nuclear powered because uh, getting to Mars is not uh, it, it it doesn't happen very rapidly, and it needs to happen much more rapidly for us to for you know future exploration to to really even make sense or be affordable. And you said it's it's uh, six six to eight months or six to nine months, depending on. Yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, that's that's why NASA wants to build nuclear spacecraft, right? It's like, well, we could cut that down to a hundred days easy with a uh, a, a nuclear powered uh, rocket. Um, and some concepts that, that they've been looking at said, well, you know, we could do even less than that, forty five days, maybe even thirty. It's uh, you know you're you're pushing the boundaries of uh, of engine technology right now, but that's the whole point. We're we're counting on there to be breakthroughs between now and then that are really going to make getting to Mars uh, faster and easier. And yeah, but the idea, the the main idea right now is NASA wants to be able to send their crews uh, toward the moon, where they will dock with. Uh, the lunar gateway, which is you know orbiting a, a habitat kind of like the ISS, but much smaller, um, they'll dock there, and then they will transfer to a, another spacecraft, the deep space transport. That's going to fly them to Mars, where they're going to rendezvous with another uh, orbiting space station, and then go up and down from there. Um, 
and uh, yeah, Andy Weir's idea was yeah they'd have uh, uh, launch vehicles put down on the surface, and and that would carry the the, the space capsules and the crew back up to a big ship, and and yeah, it's like I, I remember seeing that and thinking that's that's a really expensive mission architecture, and that's really not what NASA has planned. But it still looked really neat, and and it was really quite interesting how it did it did use uh, a lot of you know NASA plans and NASA uh, spacecraft. It's like uh, Mark Watney ends up launching to space there. He's he's in what's clearly an Orion spacecraft, it, uh, and uh, just it comes with this launcher there, and yeah, it's like the, they they weren't far off, but. Uh, yeah, they did sort of imagine that NASA was going to be going the really expensive route, and in I don't know, yeah, so, sometime in the 2030s. And NASA still hopes to do this by the 2030s, but uh, it they, won't look like the same. What would they eat? Like, uh, like uh, basically protein bars, like Clift bars or something? Um, yeah, astronauts right now eat a lot of frozen, um, freeze-dried food. Um, they also, if you look at the ISS, they also eat a lot of um, of uh, normal baked uh, food, uh, you know, a fair deal of processed food, and um, just all of it is put in those little handy uh, uh, seals, right, to, to keep it. Um, and uh, I, I do think they actually do get a, they do get their fair share of, uh, of, of fresh food. Um, and, but if you're, if we're talking vegetables and so forth, anything that, uh, really doesn't do well with packaging and really won't keep very well, they grow it up there. So, okay. yeah, it's like a, but yeah, there, there's a lot of research into, uh, long duration space missions in spacecraft. Can they not grow some plants in there? Cause not only will they help clear, clean the air, but it's you know it's a good source it's a good nutritional supplement and well it sounds with all the carbon yeah. dioxide it's already a greenhouse so <laughs> mm -hmm. oh yeah i mean people breathing <laughs> yeah. yeah that produces a ton of carbon dioxide so could yeah, plants breathe very good idea could, could, and what plants yeah could plants breathe there if there was some that were hardy enough for the for the temperature conditions i don't know that there uh, are any but uh, yeah on the surface of mars uh no no, not uh, not not as it is right now. But that is an idea for the long term. And uh, once again, Kim Stanley Robinson he uh, he explored all this, and it's like, well, if we thicken the atmosphere, that's step one in making Mars a nicer place for humans to live. If you thicken the atmosphere, and there's a number of ways you can do that, um, so then the air is thicker, the air, it's warmer on the surface, and uh, the carbon dioxide is still going to be the the main the main gas in the air. So, could we put out some lichens that are uh, genetically modified, or if we can get it warm enough, can we just put out lichens that grow all over planet Earth there in, in really cold conditions, and they can grow out on the rocks and uh, in the dirt and start uh, you know doing their photosynthesis thing and and converting some of the CO2 into oxygen. It's like, yes, yes, we can. Probably we'll still have to modify them because the radiation is not uh, particularly uh, uh, pleasant there compared to Earth. So 
that's a good first step. And it's like just little by little, um, you, you slowly introduce vegetation and such. And, and you definitely want to start with the stuff that's really, really tough. That's used to, uh, to hard conditions on earth. Uh, start to start introducing those and then it's like over time you just you, you start completing the life cycle by introducing more complex plants things that are a bit more temperamental and eventually um, once the air is uh, once the atmosphere is converted enough that there's actually enough oxygen in, in the atmosphere to breathe and the co2 is down to a small amount there for strictly for the uh, warming effect and you also got to pump in a lot of nitrogen there to to buffer it, and then you can start introducing animals, and, and humans could actually start walking around without uh, without a pressure suit. But they they might still need to, to bring a, a, some bottled oxygen with them just in case, because the air is still going to be pretty thinner than what we're used to. Uh, a couple of simple questions, then back to that one. Um, it, could you, I mean, could they build greenhouses or arboreums or something that, that you know, for, mm -hmm. okay, so that, that could yeah. be done with the, with the 3D printer or what have you or modules. Um, oh, yeah. That, that process that you were talking about, which I think most people call terraforming, I assume that's basically yeah. what you mean. I mean, yeah. how long a process is that for a planet, even one the size of Mars? I mean, are you talking about decades you're talking about centuries how long would that such a process take and i mean it's taken us a, about 150 years since the industrial revolution to pretty much screw up our air so uh how long does it take to actually create an atmosphere uh well to create an atmosphere we can breathe like that that's that's the long long term one there the converting it uh that will take centuries um, yeah, there's no doubt about that there. That, that will take a very, uh, possibly even into millennia. It's like a thousand years feels, and, and this is not a scientific estimate really, it's just, uh, you know, uh, just a thought there, but uh, I would say a thousand years seems like a safe average bet. Um, everything else though, just thickening the atmosphere, making it warmer would be a matter of decades because it's like, there's so many ways we can do that there. And yeah, NASA and it, NASA really actually just commissioned several of these studies. These were these were made largely by uh, scientists who were uh, addressing the idea, um, and uh, it's been explored in fiction too. And it's like, yeah, there's there's so many ways that Mars could be transformed, and these ways all kind of go. They all kind of work together. You do one, and it. It achieves progress in another area because you're you're creating all these the feedbacks, right? Sure. Kind of like we're doing with the Earth here now, only they're they're not good feedbacks. They're, but uh, yeah, what we've been doing on Earth for the past 150 years that's that is what we need to do to Mars to make it more livable. Except we'd be pumping oxygen and nitrogen in, in, into the basically. Is that I mean, when you say there's so many ways to thicken the atmosphere, one. Mm -hmm. ha how does the fact that there's no there's a very little um, mag magnetic field impact that and what are i don't know the top three or five ways to thicken an atmosphere and does them yeah. and 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 explains me you know if there's no magnetic field and so there's no protection and radiation you know uh, are, aren't you fighting literally against the sun uh well sort of and, 
And yeah, this, this, this is a question I've been asked a lot over the years there. It's like, uh, wouldn't the whatever you put up there just get stripped away? And it's like, well, yeah, over the course of eons, it would be stripped away. So it's like, we, and, uh, and that's if you just thicken it and then leave it, right? So um, it's, it wouldn't be that difficult to, if we're already there doing the terraforming, it wouldn't be that difficult to maintain it. Um, because, yeah, the stripping by solar wind and, um, would happen very slowly. But there is uh, ideas for how, and this was a NASA proposal, actually, and it's the best one I've heard so far, which is that you place a magnetic shield in the uh, L1 Lagrange point, so between uh, Mars and the Sun, and it would be sitting there, um, shielding Mars uh, just all the time um, and yeah it would, it would basically act as the way Earth's magnetic field does it causes a sort of a bow shock to form around the planet so the solar wind is now leaving the atmosphere alone and it's like well yeah if you do that the atmosphere will start replenishing itself all by itself because there's Mars manages to maintain the current atmosphere it has through you know gases coming out of the surface well, how big a shield is this? I mean, there's a Death Star size. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! No, it's uh, uh, it, it would be uh, I don't remember the exact dimensions, but it, it would be sizable. So you know, a few hundred meters across, uh, very you know thin material there. Just uh, basically, uh, it's capable of generating uh, an electromagnetic field, and it can do that uh, with solar panels because it's getting twenty four seven energy from the sun. Um. Yeah, and it's it's all the way out at the at the L1 Lagrange point. So it's like, yeah, a small shield out here creates this big, huge, you know, sort of funnel-shaped uh, air zone behind it. There. All right, let me take let me take a uh, yeah. a, a, a quick break just because I'm not sure that everyone knows what the Lagrange point is, and I'm not sure I do, but I think I do. Uh, so, yeah. because space is three is you know, in three in every it's in every in every size, just, you, you can't just use a map. So the Lagrange point is is the point in this three dimensional map where something would be fixed and stay or follow the the orbit of Mars. So that if I understood you correctly, it would it would sort of follow the orbit of Mars and sort of be between the Sun and Mars at all times. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, Lagrange points are basically where you've got multiple bodies with gravity. So, like, Earth has, has these same things with the sun, and uh, the moon is part of it. So it's like uh, points uh, in space around us where the gravitational forces kind of balance each other out, and anything you put in there will now be in a highly, highly stable uh, spot and, and stay there. It won't be uh, circling. It you know it, it moves with the orbit of the planet, but it essentially remains in place. And so for for Mars, the um, yeah the uh, Mars Sun L one point is the point that's uh, that is around Mars, kind of like in a a wide orbit, uh, but much much closer to Mars than it is the Sun. And yeah, it's right between Mars and the Sun. So it's like, yeah, you put a magnetic shield into that spot and it will just break the wind, right? And uh, break the solar wind. 
and and keep it yeah, and keep Mars safe in its uh, in its wake. Okay, let's let's go into some of the more favorite mysteries of Mars or myths of Mars, and let's start with the the one that's popular that there was that there was a civilization because there had to be a nuclear war because nothing else explains the levels of a particular form of xenon. It's either 29 or 129 on Mars. And and before you debunk that, I sort of have my own little theory on this that, that seems to be commonsensical, that there could be any other than nuclear war, which is that there is no atmosphere and there are, so you have solar radiation for billions of years or a solar flare hit at some point with no protection. It seems to me that the sun is just one giant nuclear mega reactor and, and that could account for it. But and A, have, I'm sure you've heard that myth. B, uh, can you debunk it? And it was my amateur attempt even close. Uh, well, I, I'm not uh, sure I can debunk yours there. I, I, uh... Uh, you know, leave it with me though, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll come back to it there. It, uh, it's it's got a few layers, it seems like there. Um, however, uh, I, I can uh, I can uh, tackle the one about uh, xenon. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, the idea there is that so xenon is um, what uh, decays from um, iodine. Um, which in turn is created from the uh, the, the breakup of uranium yeah uranium atoms and uh, so yeah it's like okay so there is xenon in Mars atmosphere just trace amounts uh, but then again that was also part of the solar nebula from which the sun and all the planets formed so the fact that uh, that Mars has any of that in its atmosphere well it's like early early Earth did as well. And Mars's atmosphere today actually it resembles uh, uh, what Earth's primordial atmosphere was uh, believed to have been like, and that it was really rich in uh, in uh, carbon dioxide and other other gases there. Um, and you sure they said xenon? I'm not sure about any of it, but yes, I'm pretty sure it was okay. xenon. I'm pretty sure it says xenon 129, but if the answer is no, there's nothing unusual about the levels of any form of xenon yeah. on Mars, especially given the lack of a, uh, the weakness of the atmosphere, that's perfectly normal, then that, then that, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of cherry picking information to come up with a conclusion that there was uh, a civilization that destroyed itself in a nuclear war. I mean, a bunch of yeah, dominoes yeah. fell backwards on, on that one, especially, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, it, my understanding is, though, that it's uh, really, really, really very little amounts there. And uh, I believe NASA and the Curiosity rover actually, um, like, found evidence there. It's like, yeah, there's, there's traces, amounts of this and other things, but they can explain how that is formed through cosmic rays and all that stuff there so uh it's uh it, it is uh certainly fun it's a fun speculation there can can you run your theory by me again there i, I need to uh well my well my, my theory seems to be irrelevant now since there doesn't seem to be a a high level of of this xenon uh or some some okay. residue material from a nuclear war but my theory was basically 
since Mars doesn't have much of an atmosphere and since that you really can't distinguish between a nuclear explosion and basically giant solar flare because the sun is a nuclear explosion uh, basically uh, that it would be it could just be from exposure to a solar flare or just or just billions of years of exposure to the sun hmm yeah no that that makes a lot of sense frankly um, in fact that's uh that's pretty close to what NASA there was saying there. It's like, yeah, the uh, solar rays interaction uh, between that and chemical elements that were there uh, on Mars since its formation, they will create a bunch of things. And that, mm-hmm. yeah. So nothing to see yeah. here. Speaking of things to see, yeah. you know, there, there there's the the face of Mars. So anything on yeah. the on the on the famous face of Mars? Uh, yeah. Well, that that was something that was um, thoroughly. Uh, rather thoroughly debunked so the viking orbiter and this is this is what's uh, sort of ironic there it's like the viking orbiters uh go to mars they deploy the landers the landers uh check the soil and are looking for um you know traces of uh, uh basic life forms organic molecules things that would indicate life and those readings that came back say oh no this uh the, the soil looks pretty dead to us but meanwhile, the orbiters go over the Sidonia uh, region of Mars, so elevated uh, grounds and plateaus, and the the little low resolution cameras they they see the peaks of uh, of the uh, of this one raised uh, area there, and it's like all well, the shadows that, that are dancing across it there. Yeah, that, that makes it looks like eyes and uh, a mouth and so forth. Um, yeah, so then it wasn't until 2000, or uh, 2001, Mars, the Mars Global Surveyor went there and took pictures, and they said, oh, there's that exact thing, and now that we have a high-resolution camera, now it's just a big, craggly, you know, mountainous surface. Um, but then again, you know, it's like once you see the face, you can't not look at it and not still feel like there's, a, there's you know, a set of eyes there and maybe a, a crude mouth and nose, but... Yeah, there's uh, there's a word for all of this, and it happens so much with uh, photos from Mars, and it's uh, uh, pareidolia, I believe. Yep, that is. Uh, Same yeah, thing when and, you see uh, a cloud and you see a turtle. Yeah, you know, people see you know Elvis's face in a grilled cheese sandwich, or the Virgin Mary in in the mold behind their fridge, or you know, if you can do that, you can see a face on Mars. You can see uh, a lizard. Uh, a coffin, a doorway, stairs. Ah, yes, the doorway, the stairs, the yeah. pyramids, the pyramids also. Are, yes, so are those yes. all pareidolia as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, pictures were snapped, they were shared, and people, you know, saw saw familiar shapes there and said, oh, my God, does this prove this? And, and of course, that goes viral, and NASA issues an explanation saying, no, that's not what it is. But of course, it's already gone viral, and people love it. And and um, yeah, and it's it, it is um, it is fascinating though because um, oh yeah, I had a quote for this. Uh, Carl Sagan had said uh, 1980 on, his, on uh, Cosmos that Mars has become a kind of mythic arena onto which we have projected our earthly hopes and fears. And I thought, well, you know, it's kind of uh, strange to say it's become that because wasn't it always that uh, we, we've been myth making about 
and uh, and assuming things about it for centuries based on what we're able to see. And yeah, it's like uh, the Martian canals, the the uh, dark patches on its surface, all of that stuff gave rise to this notion that there might be a civilization there, and even there were even scientific minds who took that seriously. And, uh, and yeah, we saw polar ice caps and what appeared to be clouds, so we thought, oh, the, yeah, there must be somebody there. There must be the civilization. They're growing crops. That's the dark stuff there. And, and it's like, yeah, none of these opinions were really particularly informed. They were just us seeing things and hoping. And that, that's, that is what people do, right? They, uh, they desperately want to believe something sometimes, and, you, you know, a small teaser like that. And, you know, whereas a scientist would tell you, well, let's wait till all the facts are in. The likelihood of this is entirely, entirely low to negligible. But, um, yeah, there's, you can never tell people not to believe something there because, sure. yeah, yeah, the, the, the desire to believe uh, things, especially that, you know, there's, there's life out there, it's very powerful. And, yeah, and it, it is, in a way, it's too bad Mars is uh, really quite so, uh, uh, well, difficult, uh, would be so unbelievably challenging for life to take root. And, and I hope we don't find the same thing out about, uh, well, Europa or other icy moons. That are yeah, we're going we're gonna to get there in a second. Uh, I, so yeah. I'm going to assume the answer to the next question is that we have found no evidence of uh, bacteria, microbes, uh, viruses, and, and anything that, they, you know, even if it's unpleasant and primitive you know, life, that there's been nothing, nothing in the water, nothing in the ice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, okay. All the we um, yeah, there's so much more surveying and studying to do, and it's all related to. Um, it's not just about um, you know, proving or disproving that there's life there. It's about finding out um, the history of Mars and how life evolved in the solar system. Um, but uh, yeah, all all searches to date have yielded no evidence of uh, of of life or fossilized life. So, but, um, yeah, we have found organic molecules like methane. So there's that. Um, the bottom line is, and, well, and this, what's the difference in the organic molecule and life? Hmm. Well, uh, hmm. an organic molecule is, is you would, you could say it is, uh, sort of quasi alive. It will decay. It will, um, and, but this this is true of uh, an awful lot of uh, of different types of things like uh, radi- radioscopic decay is kind of like life. It's you know slowly an atom breaks down, it loses energy, and it dies. But organic molecules are formed, uh, or they're there's either a result of biological processes, or they're precursors to them. They are associated with it. So yeah, methane is associated with life because it's uh, it's part of our organic structure, right? It's what we emit when we break down and start decaying. Um, and if you think about cows, you know, it's the result of them you know, digesting food and mm-hmm. you know, farting, it out, farting uh, the gas out the back. Um, so yeah, so it's a so it's a it's a very primitive building block or end result of a life cycle, but it's not necessarily life itself. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and in fact, uh, by the time you get to plant life, you're talking about uh, you know, rather complex organic molecules, and they are they are considered uh, living things because yeah, they have they, they they grow, they age, they die, they have circulation, they convert things, they yeah, they consume and, and produce waste, basically everything we do, but you know they're not pretentious about it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you are you going to yeah. tell me next that there's no mysteries on the dark side of the moon either? Well, there there very well could be. I mean, we've uh, we're starting to explore there, but uh, you know, how would we know? Until until we've explored it, we can't say there's no mysteries there. Okay, well, good. But, then, um, still, yeah, and well, you know, mysteries about Mars definitely. It's like um, okay, so if there's still life there, it's likely to be underground, and the fact that methane comes out of vents in the ground is actually a, a an indication that that it's a possible indication of that because um i mean on earth uh, that's that's part of what happens here too not all not, not all methane is um the result of biology or biological processes but uh, yeah methane coming out of the ground it's like us pulling liquid natural gas or oil that's all this decayed organic material that was once living things just buried underground like dinosaurs and ancient ancient forests and so forth um so yeah it's, it's possible life still exists underground in salty patches of water there's a lot of research that supports that and um yeah the other thing is it's like well if life didn't emerge on earth on its own if it was actually dropped here by uh, an asteroid or a comet well mars was getting hit with those same comets and asteroids too way back when so and those are the things that brought water. So if they also brought the building blocks of life, and yeah, the uh, the missions to near Earth asteroids there, like uh, uh, the uh, Hayabusa, the Japanese uh, satellite, it brought back samples of rock that said that this asteroid uh, Ryugu's got 22 amino acids on it. There are types of. It's like that's that's what that's a full deck right there. Right. Those are the acids, the acids you need to make proteins. That's the building blocks of life and DNA, and they're up there on that asteroid. That's pretty compelling evidence that life came from space, or the, the building blocks did. So Mars would have got hit with those same ones. So we know that at least uh, the material got there, and it was warm and wet for a pretty a pretty big window. So. Couldn't that have formed some, you know, uh, single-celled bacteria or something there in that time? And, and, and yeah, it, it also opens up a lot of interesting prospects for life elsewhere in the solar system. Ah, because, that's yeah. a perfect segue, because that's, that's where I was going to go to next. I was actually going to ask, I was going to phrase it, are there better choices in the solar system besides distance, such as Cirrus or Io or Europa or any dwarf planets? And then I was going to close out with, uh, you know, the, 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 the myth of Nibiru, that there's something out there that's causing gravity. Well, I can tell by your, the audience can't see your face, but the, the Nibiru caused, a, 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 like he just ate something that tasted really bad. Like he wasn't expecting yeah. olives on his pizza and there were olives on his pizza. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, so beyond uh, Mars and beyond the asteroid belt, uh, although, yeah, uh, more recent... Uh, Exploration has, has kind of brought attention back to the asteroid belt too in Ceres, um, but 
Yeah, it really started in Jupiter's system of moons there because uh, the Voyager probes, they uh, they looked at um, Jupiter's moon Europa, and we've looked at it many times since, and the impression was, so that's a big icy surface, but there's all these marks on it there that look like it's, you know, there's been resurfacing and and refreezing. We've seen that in ice, in ice uh, patches on Earth. And so it's like, oh, okay, so the surface is is icy, but it, it experiences, you know, similar activity as, as, as uh, ice formations or even the, the crust here on Earth does. And um, they... They, uh, yeah, later on there were uh, readings that uh, that were examined there, and it said, you know, there's there's actually evidence here between its its magnetism, between the way its crust looks like it's uh, um, you know resurfacing and and so forth, and uh, yeah, all of this would suggest that there's water, liquid water, salty liquid water beneath that surface, and everything we've seen since points to the way to that. We've even seen water plumes coming out of the surface. And and the theory was that, uh, okay, so all the models we have on Europa and all the other moons in the outer solar system say that they're likely to have, uh, you know, the rocky and metallic stuff down in the center. They have an icy shell on top, but some of them, the the gravitational pull of their uh, their big planets would cause the the coral region to sort of flex and and strain, and that, that would cause all this energy released from the from the core. It would hit the ice above it, and it would it would be warm enough that that ice could exist as a a, a reasonably warm ocean. And then they started thinking, well, yeah, down down on the uh, the ocean floor. Wherever it's geologically active, we have hydrothermal vents, right? All this heat and magma and chemicals are being kicked out from the Earth's interior. It's getting into the water, and life just spawns all around it there because it's got all this energy and all these uh, lovely, uh, lovely compounds that are necessary for life. And so, yeah, the the, the case for life inside Enceladus became uh, a big one, and then. Well, the Cassini orbiters uh, flew to uh, Saturn and was looking at its moons, and it's like, well, Titan's got a lot of the same thing going on, and it's even got a dense atmosphere and a, a lot of weird organic stuff going on in the atmosphere and on surface. But it also might have an interior ocean. And Cassini also flew past Enceladus, and it's like, well, we know there's an ocean in there. It's spraying out water from the, the southern polar region there, like Europa does. And yeah, altogether, it's like, well, so there's even more um, moons orbiting Saturn that are likely to have interior oceans. There's also ones around uh, Uranus. Uh, Triton, which is Neptune's largest moon, probably has uh, an interior ocean too. Uh, and maybe even Pluto and its, and its large moon, Charon. And so, yeah, it's like all of that just sort of built up and, and a lot of scientists were saying, yeah, we need to we need to get missions out there now. We need to start looking at, at the water plumes and trying to s- scan beneath the surface. We need to land on Titan and check out those methane lakes. And um, yeah, it's like all of our astrobiology has been focused on Mars for a very long time. And but the next big leap is going to be yeah Europa and beyond for sure. There's there's already missions planned there. Um, 
But definitely not into and, here. Venus and Mercury are pretty much out. No, no, no. Yeah, Mercury is... Uh, oh. Yeah, it is freezing cold on one side. It is massively irradiated on the other side. Um, you know, if, if it had any kind of life, it's like, yeah, maybe single-celled bacteria uh, underground. Um, it's mercurial. Venus? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's hermetic or... I don't know. Venus, uh, <laughs> on the other hand, it's like Venus is uh, the closest thing we have to hell in our in our solar system there. It's like if hell exists, it's somewhere on the, the surface of Venus. And, yeah, it's hot enough to melt lead. The atmospheric pressure is enough to crush your skull. Uh, sulfuric acid rain. There's, yeah, there, there, there are people theorizing there could be or living bacteria um, on, on top of the clouds, on top of the cloud deck, if right. it's uh, tough and hardy enough. Well, it's a possibility, but we haven't confirmed that yet. Um, yeah, in, in the other solar system, there there seems like there's real potential to find aquatic life inside the moons of that orbit gas giants, and that, you know, if, if in fact the ingredients of life are distributed by you know, asteroids and comets and so forth. I mean, these places have been hit a million times. Then, yeah, it's like, and we know that stuff gets pulled under and then pushed up all the time. So, yeah, these th these places could have got the ingredients for life. It could have evolved. It would probably be uh, somewhat limited because it's like there's not a lot of places for it to, uh, and niches for it to find and then evolve, but well, then again, we don't really know that for sure. We won't really know until we send something there. Right. So the aquatic life we're talking about, are you talking about like paramecium? Are you talking about horseshoe crabs? Are you talking about the Loch Ness Monster? Blue whales? I mean, well, I mean, I know that you don't know, but what, what, what yeah. would be the, the, the best guess of level of or levels of life? Would it be fish? Would it be shrimp? Would it be something you know that we think more about, like a swimming amoeba, a paramecium, or maybe I just let mm -hmm. you answer? Yeah, no, yeah, I, I would say something along the lines of paramecia and uh, amoeba. Um, but around those hydrothermal vents, you know, it's like it, it is not far fetched to think that they won't have similar something similar to what we see on Earth around hydrothermal events, like extreme life forms that are include, uh, uh, I, I don't know what they fall into, but extreme prawns or something, you know, <laughs> are, you know, still, um, those luminescent, uh, phosphorescent, uh, crazy looking, uh, fish or whatever they are. Uh, well, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's possible that yeah, aquatic uh, complex aquatic life forms have formed there. It's just that like cuttlefish yeah, type, jellyfish well, level. Uh, jellyfish, yeah, probably cuttlefish. Not sure. Okay. I, I, I think there's a cutoff somewhere, but you know, I, I I wouldn't know where to put it. It would just seem arbitrary. It's like somewhere pre kraken. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, we're not likely to find. Uh, whales or sharks or, or so forth there but uh, there there is hope that if we go to Titan and we land something in Kraken Mare the the biggest uh, methane lake there on the planet there 
If we land in there, we will find something slightly akin to a kraken, right? Okay. Might be, might be tiny, might be very simple, but who cares? We're going to call it a kraken, right? Absolutely, the micro kraken. Yes. Uh, as long as you don't find the swamp thing. Um, okay, so I, I, because of the face you made was so wonderful. Well, you know the the burrow thing is 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 there any yeah. is there anything to gravity is working weird someplace that there's got to be some sort of astronomical thing on the other side of the sun that we can just never see and it could or couldn't be a planet or or you know what was what was the cringe about uh, the uh, the ancient aliens theories about yeah there's a planet Nibiru out there and they came to Earth and did all these crazy things and it's and yeah it's like okay so you're the that theory um i forget who who is the guy's name but yeah that eric von dannegan and zachariah Sitchin. yeah right yeah it's like so you read uh, ancient uh, babylonian texts and you interpreted them as you know aliens uh, coming to earth and doing that there you, you sort of Basically, yeah, it's like, well, ancient peoples associated the the planets, the wandering stars, with various gods. So, yeah, this leap that, that yeah, this, this was an actual, uh, an actual record of uh, extraterrestrial encounters and where their descendants and so forth, it's, it's just, you know, laugh out loud kind of, uh, it's like wonderful imagination, science fiction gold you know <laughs> but uh yeah let's let's not let's not talk about this like it's a like an actual provable theory here sure but but, but is there anything yeah. there we don't need to call it yeah, the guru yeah. it doesn't need oh, to yeah, be the yeah. source of life yeah well there is there is something there in terms of uh what astronomers have been uh, turning up lately and it's that there may be a planet a distant planet in the outer solar system far in the outer solar system um, or a black hole, that was another theory there, just a, a small uh, black hole, that is uh, causing gravitational perturbations there. It's, uh, it, it sort of kicks things up in the outer solar system um, periodically. And, yeah, there are those people who, who want to call it Nibiru, and, you know, they may get their way. Uh, Planet Nine was suggested, but that really offended the the Pluto crowd. Right, right? the Pluto, the Pluto like, people are still upset. Right, got it. Yeah. How far would this? When you say the outer solar system, I mean, are you talking about within the inner belt? Are you talking past Jupiter? Are you talking post-Neptunian space? Oh yeah, yeah, way well beyond the orbit of Neptune, right? Okay. Um, and so, this is the only so like Pluto. So Pluto distance. Uh, even even beyond that, you know, Pluto is very far. It's uh, you know it, it it's shares its orbit with uh, the uh, the Kuiper Belt, the, the which is like the outer belt, and and uh, you know the objects there are uh, called asteroids rather than asteroids because they're mostly composed of ice. But um, yeah, the predicted um, orbit. Uh, we're talking hundreds of, of astronomical units, so several hundred times the distance between Earth and uh, the Sun and Pluto's orbit, if I'm not mistaken. What's your perihelion? It is, yeah. Uh, like 220 years, something the, like that, right? 
Well, well yeah, the, the uh, it's it's overall or it's average distance from the sun, which oh. ranges quite a bit there. But it ranges from just shy of thirty to just shy of fifty AU's, whereas Planet Nine would be somewhere in the vicinity of four hundred or you know. What, what's a, a from like, what's an AU in miles? Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know there there is a calculator for this. Uh, so yeah, okay. One astronomical unit is uh, about uh, ninety-two uh, million, ninety-two million miles. Oh, so that's that's a different. That's that's the distance between Earth and Sun generally, right? Yes. Oh, that's yeah. well, that's going that's so, a convenient uh, uh, measuring yeah. stick. Yeah. So multiply that by seven several hundred, and that's uh, that's how far this. This planet would be uh, Nibiru, Planet Nine, Planet X was the what the Pluto crowd liked, uh, and planet yeah, and, far. And so at that distance, yeah, at that distance, it it would pick up so little light from the sun that we can't possibly uh, get a reflection from it if we looked at it with infrared. I I think uh, it would produce a heat signature so tiny that you know similar problem. Um, so yeah, it's kind of ironic, really. It's like the uh, and some of the hardest things for us to detect are right in our backyard, whereas you know the James Webb, it's it's looking back to the, the galaxies that existed uh, well over thirteen billion and thirteen and a half billion years ago, and yeah, it's like we can look back through space and time to the very very early universe, but we can't spot a planet in our outer backyard. And there's so many objects that we still haven't actually observed yet. We just kind of know they're there. But yeah, the so yeah, and so obviously I, I don't like the uh, ancient aliens theories much, but you know I, I kind of do actually. It's just when when people are arguing them like, seriously, like these are we have proof and so forth, and, and it's you know of course uh, based on a lot of hope and, and supposition and such. The, the the so so the issue with like Planet Nine, Planet X, etc., is that uh, for many, they saw this as confirmation that yeah, the uh, that all that theory was true, and they expect to be visited by aliens from there. But you know, I don't I don't think you're really getting the, the grasping the significance of this discovery here. Right. Well, I mean, there's, there's there's something very comforting in believing firmly in something that can't be disproven because it can't be yes. disproven. So you can never be yeah. pro- proven to be wrong, at least no time soon. Um, back to Mars on the the con- the construction of these modules and these and then and creation of the domes with three D printers. Would this be by astronauts or would this be by robots, androids, whatever word you want to use? Well. Um- it's um, in one version, right? The astronauts would be supervising, right? They would be working the robots, so they'd be there to uh, to guide the whole process. Um, but the robots would be largely autonomous. They'd be capable of uh, of you know basically gathering the materials, uh, processing them, printing them, all that stuff. So you really only need someone there to be to supervise. Um, rather than, you know, working all the controls and telling the robot to do everything. Um, but there, there are other ideas there that, no, we should be, sh- long before we send people, 
we should have robots, automated robots, going there and doing this by themselves. And it's like, yeah, the planning is keeping pace with the technology because the, the technology for you know, machine learning and autonomous systems there is advancing very rapidly. And um, so, yeah, and, and so space agencies are like, uh, well, obviously we want to take advantage of that, if, especially if it means... Uh, people don't have to go there and put themselves uh, at risk. Right? Well, um, you got to you got to act quickly though, because uh, in my profession there was an article not too long ago that there was an AI that was so convincing that it wanted to retain the services of an attorney, and a, and an attorney apparently took the case and then got berated or something from the bar association and and withdrew uh, from representing oh, their gosh. AI client. Um, but but that, that that is that is some fence straddling right there. That is that is some as close to singularity as you can get, or it could just be cloud chasing for fame. I mean, you know, but but yeah. but things usually start with a profit motive, right? So. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, yeah. The the idea of sending robots out to do a lot of the heavy lifting, especially if they're going to bring things back, that is, oh yeah. I mean, billionaires everywhere are taking that idea seriously. They're like, oh, yeah, we, we got to be ready for the asteroid mining thing. It hasn't happened yet, you know, but, uh, and they're, they're every three, few years, it does seem like there's like renewed interest and uh, investment, but it does seem like something that, yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah, possibly humans to the moon and elsewhere. Yeah, but it does even, seem like it's going to happen. Even billionaires don't want to use their own money, so it's probably yes. tough getting investors and underwriting and space insurance, which is something that uh, I need to figure out how to talk to someone about. Anyway, um, yep. all right. Now, I know that there are a lot of strange and unique properties of our moon, which make it, dare say, astronomical, which is sort of the definition of astronomical. Um uh, I'm not sure. Is is that sort of something that should, should or could be its own show in its in and of itself? There's a lot of little conspiracies about the moon, its shape, its size, its proportions to the Earth, and proportions to the Sun, and things like that. Is is that worth talking about, or or is that just a? Oh yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it is because uh, it's like uh, if you if you take the uh, well, conspiracy theories are always fun to talk about. Um, and, but even then, you know, you strip those away and, and say what we know about the moon from like established demonstrable science, um, you know, years, or not years, uh, millennia of astronomy, um, and then the actual, you know, crude missions that went there and brought back, brought back samples and everything we learned with robotic explorers, um, yeah, and, and how it formed and how it may even play a role in life emerging on Earth. There's there's a lot of that. It's like all of that is very, very fascinating. And someday, in the not-too-distant future, a couple million people may actually live there. So, All right, well, yeah. we're, we're going to yeah. do, we're going to, you know, if you're still game, we'll, we'll do another show on the moon because I, 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 uh, I read a book on it. Uh, it was a fiction book, but had a lot of interesting stuff in there. And then the movie Moonfall, which was a horrible movie, but I knew it was going to be horrible, so it was perfectly horrible for me. Uh, you know, talked about some of those things, which was 
uh, again, fun in the in the stupidest possible way. Um, but there there's nuggets there, so we'll do that another show. But uh, of course, we'll do our Babylon Five one uh, before that, so you can have a little fun. It can't all be fun for me. Um, uh, but all right, listen, you've been very generous with your time and expertise. Mars, it sounds like it, it could be livable to make it, you know, semi habitable in any sort of normal way. We're talking about you know, an emperor of China kind of timeline, like building a great wall, yes. uh, centuries, millennia, uh, you know, even, even with improvements of technology and getting it there, we're, we're still looking at hundreds of years, but there, but it is livable for the, uh, for hardy stoic sorts who have, uh, uh, with, with some help. And, uh, but yeah, I think you've given us a great history of Mars, the composition, the challenges and, uh, and then, and I'm sure that if Mr. Musk is listening, that uh, he's he's anxious to put you on payroll. And uh, I assume we just got a, a very brief overlook of, of part of your Kepler course as well. Yeah, well, yeah, actually, this this is all going to come up. Um, a few a few other uh, people uh, I want to mention there. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, what Musk is to, hoping to do on Mars is obviously very you know public. Uh, because he, you know, he, he, he shares all this via Twitter all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe too much. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, the less the politics, he needs, yeah, I'm, I'm glad uh, he got the, the FAA all, all but cleared them to do the Starship testing. And I thought, oh, my God, thank you, because clearly he's been bored and he's been pouring his crazy bored thoughts into his phone and really making a lot of people mad at him and, and hurting his company. So I, I, I'm very hoping that that was just, yeah, uh, he didn't have enough to do at the time, and now he's getting back to work and he's going to be real productive and exciting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, what is interesting is one of the things I will definitely credit him with, he, he has been a big game changer in so many ways, and he inspired so many people to start thinking about you know, a renewed era space exploration. And uh, one of those people, someone I, w- I worked with for quite a while, and uh, and we made a podcast series about uh, people living on Mars called the Martian Dispatches. Ooh. And, yeah, it, it will be uh, premiering at some point there. We're just looking for, uh, you know, a, a place for it to live. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's science fiction, but it's, uh, it, it's based on what, this organization does and it's called the Mars City Design the organization and it's founder uh, Vera Mugliani she's an architect uh, an artist design specialist and she she's one of the people that Musk inspired there when she moved to California in Silicon Valley you know she was doing uh, architecture and filmmaking and all this stuff and thought that's where the future is uh, humanity is going to go into space and one of the biggest challenges is how are we going to live out there and so her organization does this. They've, they've held design competitions. NASA did the, the same thing with their 3D printer challenge competition. And uh, they, they asked people, like actual engineers and architects, show us your best ideas for how we could live on Mars and keep in mind all this stuff, right? Like uh, in-situ resource utilization, the radiation, the cold, and all that stuff, all these challenges. So go make some art. And, and they did and the 
the designs that uh, Mars City Design inspired there too over the years. I mean, my God, they're they are really hot stuff, and that's that's actually how I found out about them and why why its CEO and I started working together. Um, and it's it is amazing too. It's like you take all of the specifics of the Martian planet and the environment, and then you try to well, you use that to come up with you know what the future cities and individual habitats and cities would look like uh, so that they can be self-sustaining regenerative and all that stuff and, and people can like thrive and not just stay alive and yeah that that too was really really fun and it's uh it's something i definitely definitely want people to check out um and uh, yeah uh, i'm actually going to include a, a lot of that work in when I teach about uh, life on Mars, because that's all about humanity's potential future there. Um, other than that, uh, yeah, I wanted to say, for a lot of people, the idea that humans are gonna go to Mars seems like a boondoggle, um, and Mars One is considered like a total, many people think it's a sham, right? And they went bankrupt and so forth. So do you remember them? I don't think I do. Yeah, they, they were founded in 2012, and they're like, we're going to do this whole crowd-funded, crowd-sourced um, mission to Mars, permanent missions to stay there, build a city. And like, I, I followed them the whole time, and I certainly felt that they were sincere. They seemed to be very committed to what they were doing, and they were putting their, their, their money where their mouth was. They were doing real research. But yeah, a lot of people just sort of scoffed and, and said, I told you so when they went bankrupt. But um, yeah, to me, I thought, well, they've proven one thing that nobody nobody can possibly deny here. They put out the call and said, we're looking for people to volunteer to go to Mars and uh, you know, on a, on a two-year basis uh, or every two years. And this is with the intent of staying there. And they got... I don't recall exactly how many, but I think uh, I think it was like seventy thousand applications. Wow! Or ten, ten, tens of thousands of applications. And Elon Musk, right? People are asking him, "When are you going to start filling out the list for going to Mars?" Because there's no shortage of volunteers. So it's like, yeah, there's all these challenges, all these difficulties. What getting there is just the first hurdle of many, and there's no guarantee that that any any settlement any city that humanity is going to be able to stay there but there there's a lot of people who want to who want to try in terms of you know making the rockets and making the the missions happen and there's absolutely no shortage of people who want to go well fortune favors the brave right yeah and it's like and if it's if it's technologically and commercially doable they're gonna do it and also if so, you're not elon musk and your best chance to become elon musk is 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 being among one of the first colonists on Mars, maybe it won't work out so well for you, but maybe in two or three generations, you you will be the land baron there or or whatever it is. So, uh, yeah. If your yeah, prospects uh, aren't yeah, so good like, here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and yeah, it's like uh, long term, uh, there, there's plenty of very, very smart people who have speculated and uh, I. I hate to make it all about Kim Stanley Robinson there, but that was definitely, that's what happened in his Mars trilogy. It's like eventually Mars became the seat of human civilization because Earth uh, basically, uh, well, 
humanity didn't go extinct on Earth. It's just it, you know, civilization collapsed. And, you know, for obvious reasons, climate change and then feedbacks from that and, uh, and you know, the, it never quite recovered. So Mars became the new center of all learning and commerce and so forth. Well, that's so that, a, that, that could be. But the other thing is, is that if, if we can make a go of it on Mars, and even if the terraforming isn't anywhere near complete, but looks like it's on a trajectory, I, I suppose all of that could be reverse engineered and be done on Earth as well, uh, with some of those lessons learned as well. So, uh, it, oh, it, yeah, that, that is actually a, like a compelling argument for... Uh, well, people who say we should fix Earth problems first, and it's like that. There are so many things wrong with that argument there, uh, just because it assumes we can't do both, or we can do one but not the other, or, or you know. But um, it's like one of the best reasons to go to Mars, and and also try this out with Venus too, because it's a, uh, it's like we can make Mars livable by doing what we do best, which is pollute, and we can terraform Venus using the same exact techniques that we may need to do on Earth someday. and But on these planets, if we screw up, well, n nobody gets killed. That we know of. At least, that we know of, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, hopefully we won't sterilize life we're not aware of there, but uh, yeah. It's like a mistake there could actually, chances are the planet will just go back to equilibrium and we'll try again. But uh, yeah, on Earth... Earth could, we could throw off the balance, it could self-correct, but a lot of people are going to die in the process. Well, between the length and and that end, which had some notes of hope, but also Doom, this is definitely going to be a Garden of the Doom episode. Plus, I've been promising Garden of Doom li listeners a moon episode for a million years, and, well, the show's been around for two years, so, but close to that full two years, I've been promising them that moon episode, so... Uh, uh, now, now I'm going to work on it. So, well, by working, I mean book a date with you. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but tell the folks where they can where they can find you again, where they can catch your podcast, uh, if they can enroll or follow the Kepler course, your books, every all things Matt Williams. Okay, well, that's uh, it's rather a lot at this point there, just because uh, last. Uh... Yeah, the last two years have been pretty pretty busy. Good. Um, so, yeah, uh, first of all, I can be found at Universe Today or Interesting Engineering. I've got lots of articles at both. Just search for my name, Matt Williams, and, uh, yeah, you'll you'll find me easily enough. Um, uh, my website, Stories by Williams, also has links to all, all my various pages, so that's, that's worth checking out, too. So storiesbywilliams.com, all one word, obviously. Um, and the new podcast is through ITSP Magazine. So that's the Intersection of Technology and Society podcast magazine. Um, and it's called Stories from Space. Um, the upcoming podcast series about Mars is called The Martian Dispatches, and that will be through Mars City Design. So I encourage you to look up them too because uh yeah they've always got cool things going on and, are those can um, you find those podcasts like on spotify apple or oh, you, yes yeah, okay. yes yes sorry yeah spotify um and yeah apple podcasts yeah definitely and uh well, as for my books uh they're they're available through amazon and uh yes uh the they're called the cronian incident the jovian manifesto 
and the frost line fracture and all of them were inspired by my uh, my day job as a space writer so they're all set throughout the solar system in the future and and uh hmm. what would i compare them to other people like to bring up the expanse but not not really no <laughs> they're 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 more ba- they're more based in uh, I'd say actually Battlestar Galactica was a pretty big influence because uh, I wanted to make something gritty, but still have the kind of themes, elements, and, and futurism uh, that Arthur C. Clarke uh, used to do, used to work with there, and yeah, he was definitely the biggest influence on me. Um, yeah, other than that, uh, can't think of a thing. Okay, well, that's a lot, and those are a lot of good things, and those are some good influences. Um, I, I throw Outland out there, maybe. Outland? Oh, uh, yeah. That's another one I haven't read yet. But oh, it's a, a movie with Sean Connery. It's basically High Noon in Space. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, all right. Very cool. Thanks again for being here. Folks, uh, follow all the Matt Williams stuff. Check out those podcasts. Uh, subscribe, of course, and check out his books. And you'll hopefully uh, be hearing from him again right here on this show. We, we'll do one on Babylon 5 in a, in a bit. Then we'll mm-hmm. do one on the moon. And then who knows? Who knows where else we'll go in this wacky universe? Uh, and check out the prior shows as well. The one on Battlestar Galactica and in situ, in situ Resource Utilization, which I think is a great companion show for this one as well. So everyone, thanks for tuning in. We will check you out next time in the Garden of Doom and check out Garden Views as well. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on sailors Fighting in the dance hall Is their life on Mars? It's on a merry cast orchard brow Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow and now the workers have struck for fame Cause Lennon's on sale again See the mice in their million hordes From Ibiza to the Norfolk Broads 
Rule Britannia is out of bounds To my mother, my dog and clowns But the film is a sad thing for Cause I wrote it ten times or more It's about to be written again As I ask you to focus on Life on Mars.